Hey, good afternoon. Here we go. Tuesday edition of the Oakley Show and another great day for talk radio. 29 on the waterfront and uh, things may be even a little hotter in certain bistros around the city uh, where, you know, the tricolor people from France congregate. Mike's looking at me like, what is that accent you're trying to affect here? Seriously, is that some Serbian thing going on there? Uh, No, the French one. Danny was just mentioning. So uh, they're through now. If the English get past the Croatians. It's going to be, you know, (laughs) a nightmare in the channel, Uh, whatever. I mean, that's going to be what? uh, Trafalgar Revisited or the Battle of Agincourt. Uh, So anyway, that'll be interesting. But the Croats are not to be taken lightly. Needless to say, when you come down to the Final Four, you got there by virtue of doing something right. So uh, interesting. That'll be tomorrow's game. And then we'll see going forward to finally close the book on this particular chapter of things. Something else that has the book closed on it. The Thai soccer team, I'm talking about the wild boars. These are the kids, the 11 to 16-year-olds. Everybody's heard the good news by now, I'm sure. Uh, They have been spirited out of the cave along with a coach. You know, and it was funny because I was listening uh, to somebody yesterday on one of these news channels that I watch at night flipping through the dials, and they had actually compared these children of illegal border crossers. By the way, can I even use that term? Uh, Yeah, there's apparently a real blowback now because uh, Doug Ford has used that term in reference to the asylum seekers coming into Canada from the United States, which technically is illegal to do. And we pointed this out yesterday. It becomes a whole semantic argument whether or not this is uh, appropriate. It seems like it's kind of spelling it out clearly. (laughs) You know, there's a fine line between legality and illegality, and one is breaking the law and the other is upholding the law or at least adhering to the law. But this is where we find ourselves now. Uh, The illegal border crossers in the States, anyway, this is, you know, the whole thing roiling around because of Donald Trump's policies and uh, where the left get carried away. And uh, yesterday, as I said, somebody from the left, I can't remember, was a commentator or just a, a senator, somebody had likened these boys in the cave to the kids who are taken, ripped from the arms of their parents. They're scared. They're separated from their parents, not knowing when they'll be freed. 14 days in a cave, 14 days in a cage. I guess I can see the likeness drawn out there. And, of course, uh, you've got all these wild boars on the left who are exploiting them. Uh, So, anyway, that's what's going on in America. Why they they liken these kids of the asylum seekers to the kids in a cave, (laughs) I have no idea, except they try to. You know, when you make these tenuous links, it's really a reach to say that. But, uh, you know, I guess nothing's gone too crazy now in a world filled with hyperbole. Although, you know, when I mention this illegal border crossers thing, I'm going to get around to that again because, you know, Toronto is a sanctuary city. And there's some question as to whether or not uh, we might have to reexamine that policy because it becomes... A magnet of sorts for illegal border crossers. And Denzel Min and Wong, this was back when Toronto almost unanimously voted in council 37 to 3. It was February of 2013 to adopt the sanctuary city model, as many American cities have, primarily on the coasts. But nonetheless, like San Francisco, uh, Chicago is a sanctuary city that ain't on the coast. Well, it is. Coast of Lake Michigan. But the point is that uh, since Toronto has done that, Denzel Minim Wong was one of the holdouts at that time. And we're going to talk to him a little later in the program as to how he feels about that today, because in some ways he was prescient and suggested this would become uh, a real problem for civic fathers and read the taxpayers. 
So we'll get around to uh, discussing that issue. But the Thai boys are safe, and that's a good development because, uh, you know, not everybody is necessarily found safe and sound. You heard the story on the news of this young lady, Candace Fitzpatrick, missing since 2008, and her parents reported her missing in 2010. Quick, get the abacus and do the math. How many years elapsed before the parents decided to flag this for the police? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, two. We all know it's well, two. Okay. I was wondering I've, if you were thinking about that. No, I thought about it. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and so this becomes kind of a curiosity to me. Now, I'm trying to understand where this would you know would would come from the two year differential because I mean some parents maybe do lose track of their kids their kids for better for worse maybe problem kids and they kick them out of the house and they experience tough love or the parents effect that kind of uh, a situation there's a sort of an estrangement but you'd hope that the kids would see the light and come back you know maybe they're living with uh, you know undesirables or you can't talk sense into them at that age but how long would you accept radio silence? You know, if you're a parent of a kid. And if that kid is, let's say, a runaway or there's, you know, problems at home, we're not, we're not saying that. We're just saying, you know, why does it take two years? And mm. you kind of wonder, where was that? She was a young person, right? 18. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I consider think. that still a kid. I would, too. I and, mean, there's no denying. You know, you get caught up in the wrong crowd. You make mistakes. Maybe going down a path that... All right, Sadly. but the parents, the point is that the parents had only reported the child, in this instant, Candace Fitzpatrick, missing two years after the fact. She had not been seen since 2008. She was 18 years old at the time, and now uh, they found what they believe to be her remains. They're testing for DNA to make sure they're 100% clear on this. Uh, in the apartment belonging to 45-year-old Adam Strong, who's been charged with indecent interference to a body in connection with the discovery of 18-year-old Rory Hache's remains, which were found, I guess, a torso pulled out of Lake Ontario by a boater there in September of 2017. And so uh, they actually did uh, the DNA testing to find or corroborate that that was her, and now they found these second sets of remains, and they're searching the backyard. And I'm saying to myself, my God, what's going on? I mean, how many backyards are going to be searched because there have been nefarious activities? Is this like Durham Region's answer to Mallory Crescent and Leeside? Oh, I know. And But the good thing is that at least they can have DNA testing that can go back 10 years, or in the case of Mallory Crescent, you know, possibly longer than that. You know, we've got this forensic ability it's incredible well yes it is and we hope that it does uh, develop some kind of certainty because obviously parents are looking to closure I guess such as that again I'm really curious as to what happened here for your I because it, it really defies credulity any parent would allow their kid to be incommunicado for a couple of years you know, I don't want to be judgmental not knowing all the facts, but tough love is one thing. Uh, somebody's kicked out of the house. How long would you accept, I said, radio silence or just you don't hear from them? And then suddenly uh, one day you wake up and go, you know, it's been two whole years since we last heard from our daughter. Maybe we should call the cops. I would think, I would think, you know, you wouldn't allow that much time to elapse. So if there's something I'm missing here, you can help me out and tell me, but uh, nonetheless. Some parents might be uh, very hard-nosed, old school, black and white, 18th birthday, you're on your own. Well, They make their own path in the world. Well, this is what I'm saying. I mean, if there's that level of estrangement, is it possible then 
that you've just either kicked somebody out of the house or they've determined they don't want anything to do with you anymore. And whether you've made your peace with that, even in the most extreme circumstances of that kind of alienation of affection, let's call it, could you go two years without even knowing somebody's whereabouts, checking up on them, especially when they're 18? I would at least check with a third party. I would Ask a so. friend. I, yeah. See, this is why I'm saying it defies credulity. I just don't understand it. I don't get it. I guess we need more detail. I'll have to leave it open as a rhetorical question, but it just does not make sense to me. And if this is the individual who's found, obviously, uh, happened to fall into the thrall of or the company of somebody who uh, had uh, some evil intent. And that may be this individual that they've charged, Adam Strong. With, interestingly enough, there's not a murder charge here, but with indecent interference to a body. And we'll see what transpires, but uh, this is something that the remains were found in this basement apartment. Let me move over to somebody else who's confined to their basement apartment in Calgary. It's Jazz Karat Situ, the semi-driver who's facing charges in connection with that fatal Humboldt Bro- uh, Broncos bus crash. He was in a Melfort, Saskatchewan provincial court earlier today. And uh, we know he's facing 16 charges of dangerous driving causing death, 13 charges of dangerous driving causing bodily harm. Now, he's been released on $1,000 bail, but he's got to meet a number of conditions. He's got to stay at his home in Calgary, which I'm told is this apartment, this basement apartment in the Saddle Ridge area of the city, follow a curfew. He's under a driving ban and he's got to surrender his passport. So he's not a flight risk once he's got his passport taken away, unless he stays within the country. But still in all, the thousand dollar bail is interesting because it tends to suggest with no priors. Yeah, I guess the the money put up is rather insignificant in light of what the tragedy was all about. But where it gets interesting to me as well, the parents were in court. Some of the parents were in court, and uh, they were adamant that they make eye contact, and they wanted him to see their faces, I guess, etched with. Still, the uh, the tragedy is uh, very, very much in evidence. But one such, and uh, we know the kid who's uh, actually been in a wheelchair, and he's gone to uh, hockey games uh, during the Stanley Cup playoffs, Ryan Straczynski, or Straznitsky, Michelle Straznitsky, his mother, so she's not surprised the guy was released on bail. She didn't comment on the thousand bucks, but not surprised he was released on bail. She says, unfortunately, it's the nature of law in this country. It will be a very long, very emotional and stressful process. We're expecting to go through a lot of emotions and feelings, but we will see it through and do trust that the investigators are doing everything that can be done to ensure that justice is served. She added the trucking industry and trucking companies also need to be held accountable. But that's something we will need to work on. Frankly, I want to see some actual remorse from those parties, she said. And, you know, we talked about that last week. I mean, what is that? It implies that they're reckless in their operations. Now, I don't want to go over that topic again because we did hear from a lot of people who believe that the trucking industry does just in general terms have a lot to be accountable for because they license people perhaps when they're not ready to be uh, put behind the wheel of an eight, you know, a, a big rig hauling hundreds of thousands of pounds. And so uh, and they're not tested adequately. It, that's become, I think, a large part of the narrative and what we accept. But what I'm interested in, because the mother and this uh, notion that we expect justice to be served, 
it's kind of saying we know the guy's guilty. Uh, let's just see him hung out uh, for the full 14-year sentence. Or what? This is what I'm getting. And I'm just curious. Now, this guy, there's so much emotion attended. And we can understand that, right? I mean, especially for the parents. But Saskatchewan, you know, the whole province is, in effect, an insular community of sorts. And you're reliant on each other because, you know, there's vast uh, spreads of land between farms and between villages communities i guess so the point is would this guy even get a fair trial in saskatchewan could you see him i mean he's i'm thinking now i don't know all the details but they're saying it's pretty hard to prove guilt because you've got to show that uh he had some knowledge of the manner that he was driving in was dangerous i don't know this is where they're not telling us much more and evidence will surface this is why the cops last week i was frustrated as you were that they weren't giving us much more detail apart from the laying of these charges 29 in total but the 16 for causing death now says to me just based on what the parents are implying here that this guy uh he may already the fix could be in i'm not saying that perhaps jurors wouldn't be able to suspend some of their emotions, but it's a hard thing to ask. Ah, would he get a fair trial, do you think? I can open the lines and ask you, can this guy get a fair trial? Or does anybody care? 16 lives lost, you might say, uh, we need to prove he is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And we hope it isn't that hard to do. And challenging to find somebody who wasn't aware of the story, that GoFundMe page and the funds that were raised. I mean, that was global. Yeah, it's so high profile. It's so high profile, it seems to me, that apart from him being found guilty and given a severe sentence, I, I don't know what other conclusion a jury might arrive at. And I'm guessing it would be a jury. Finding a jury that can be impartial. Well, Finding yeah. a jury that doesn't know anything about the story. Well, you know, but, but and I know that where uh, you would have lawyers, seasoned lawyers would tell you and judges that uh, they do trust that the jury system can suspend all these other inputs and uh, whatever news they may have heard. But I wonder if this was possible in the context of Saskatchewan and how this story became an international one fraught with so much emotion. Do you think this guy could still get a fair trial? And boy, what if he is? found to be not guilty by reason of uh, he was blinded by sunlight or, you know, he assumed that the truck would make it through the intersection because one of the early findings anyway that the police are releasing as a detail is that the truck was in the intersection when the bus hit it. And it stands to reason because that's where the bus kind of got surprised by the specter of this truck in the middle of the road. So could he get a fair trial? Let's ask. 870-6400. That'll be their first order of business on the Tuesday edition of the Oakley Show. Sue Ann Levy is going to join us here in about uh, 24 minutes' time, but uh, I wanted to get your thoughts in early. 870-6400. If you think uh, Buddy out there in Saskatchewan, now living in Calgary, can get a fair trial in this matter, or do you care?